welcome back to Joker Men. Um, your beer is still cold, um, and you've just sat sat down again at your seat at the Forum Theater in Los Angeles in 1974 to watch the rest of the show of uh, Before the Flood of this this tour with Bob Dylan in the band, and um, Bob is about to take the stage once more. He sure is, and he, I believe, is going to take the stage. Well, I guess we don't really know what this looked like, but uh, as far as we can tell from the recordings, he's going to take the stage just just him, him and a guitar, like uh, like it used to be. Ian, can you believe this? Uh, my name's Evan, and your name's Ian. I guess we should introduce ourselves again. Right, yeah, maybe we should start doing that at the beginning of all these episodes. I mean, whatever. It says Evan and Ian, or Ian and Evan, uh, we're the... The founders of this podcast. Yes. Fuck it. Moving on. Bob. Bob's up there, and I. I think I see him. Yes, that's right. That's him. Uh, I'm looking through my binoculars. I say that's him, and he has his guitar, and he's about to play. I can tell just by the way his fingers are moving and positioning on that guitar that he's about to play a classic song, and uh, I think yes, it is. It is. It's um. Don't think twice. It's all right. That's what we're all here for, right? Yes. It, um, yeah, this is, it, it's funny to, this is sort of like an inversion, right, of what he used to do, where the old live shows, he would he would go up with an acoustic guitar at the beginning, because that's, that's what the kids were there to see, and then he would pull out the, uh, the electric fender afterwards, um, and, uh, and uh, you know, crank the amps uh, towards the end. And everyone would get pissed. Everyone would get super, super mad. Everyone um, would go, "Ugh, yuck!" Yeah, I can't believe I'm about to be rocked. I can't believe that uh, that audiences used to react like that. That that seems cool to me. That that audiences used to do that. Like, can you imagine that ever happening at uh, at a show these days? I mean, I was thinking about like how beautiful that is in a way. Um, we d- we touched on this a a bit before but um what if uh what if the hottest take is that those people were right (laughs) what if it what if they were actually right and that they they could foresee something that that bob going electric would lead to disaster untold that um that that to be rocked and rolled would would be uh, the end of the intimate connection between songwriter and and audience, and it would never be recovered. Um, I think that that is at the heart of the the hurt feelings when Bob went electric. Is that uh, that close? Um, very, um, in some ways, too close. Uh, and and troubling parasocial relationship that the the audience had with Bob Dylan, the um, soothsaying strummer and bard, um, that that relationship yeah. would never be the same again. They'd ne- they'd have less to grab onto as like feel they would never get to really build up in their head in the same way that this man is speaking directly to me. Soothsaying strumming, that's pretty that's pretty good. 
I mean, those those people were definitely reactionaries, and uh, it is a hot take to think that they might have been right. Well, are, were they reactionaries or were they romantics? Well, it, it can be hard to tell the difference sometimes, to be honest. Um, but uh, I do, whether or not I would have booed uh, or called him Judas or something along with the rest of them, I like to think that I wouldn't have, but uh, hindsight's twenty twenty, as they say. Um, I do like there. There is something kind of cool about like the, you know the possibility of going to a show and like not knowing what to expect and being legitimately surprised by what happens and so surprised that you like become angry enough yeah. to like catcall the or not catcall but like hoot yeah, and holler at the artist. Hey, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to catcall. Um, yeah, I mean, it, there's something remarkable about an audience caring that much about anything. When was yeah, the last time like, anybody gave a shit that much about what was happening on stage? At a, r- at a like show? shows these days, I don't know how you feel necessarily, but for me, like, like shows the, like we, you know, shows these days don't exist anymore. Uh, but you know, uh, when they, when they did in the not too distant past at this point, and hopefully Five when they come back ago. again. Yeah. Um, shows like, uh, like you're, they're they're fun to go to and you go to them still obviously you and i went to destroyer like as uh as the coronavirus was yeah. literally like ripping through new york city in mid-march it's a great like a show. Bad idea it, that was a great show but uh probably not the greatest idea on our part probably uh, a lot looking. of people got the coronavirus from going to see uh canadian band destroyer at uh, at the Brooklyn Steel venue in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Um, yeah, it was. It's it's very odd to think but, of that. But that but, was a great show, and I, and I mean, well, it, yeah, it, that was a great show, it, and and like that was, you know, that's about as good as you can get for a show these days. But even that, like, you kind of you know what to expect, right? Like you can you can look up the set list in advance. Um, or you can go to Setlist FM and get a sense for the songs that, that they're playing, and like you kind of know the cadence of what's going to happen. It's going to be X number of songs. They're going to mostly be from albums A, B, and C. Uh, at the end of the set, there's going to be a two-minute pause. The lights are going to stay down. The PA guy is not going to start playing music. Right. You're going to cheer for them. They're going to come out for the encore. They're going to do two songs. It's predictable. Yeah, like you're, everyone's kind of like going through the motions, basically, the, the band and the audience both, and that... Um, that 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 wasn't what was happening, you know, back, you know, back. I, I guess that is kind of what's happening on Before the Flood. But the earlier albums or the earlier live shows when uh, when the audience is, is catcalling, like we said. It's even even to the point of just Dylan's playing a huge hallmark of Dylan's early sound and even into well into his career when he would at various points be playing the guitar with a band following him more so um on say the the endless tour uh he plays very loosely and he does everything loosely in in terms of by all accounts the way he records in the studio but especially just the way that he plays guitar more often than not, he'll do like an extra few, few bars or beats before getting back to the the verse. Um, it'll kind of come and go in this in this very organic way that just kind of flows in a stream of consciousness fashion with 
you know, maybe he just kind of forgot the next thing for one second. So he plays a little longer, brings it back. Um, and that was a huge hallmark of his early stuff. I, I heard recently for the first time, the first known live recording of visions of Joanna. Huh? And it's very interesting to hear for, for that reason. It's quite loose. Did he play, did he play it electric or did he play just it, acoustic? Uh, acoustic. Oh, wow. And, on this rec- record, on Before the Flood, there is positively uh, none of that. It's up to this point some of the tightest playing that I think Bob has um, on on record, certainly in live performance. The songs are they they don't linger too long. They really cut to the, right to the chase. Yeah, it's it's a professional operation, right? It's clear that there's. Uh, I, I was actually looking. Um, before we started recording, I was looking at the um, uh, the set lists for each of these shows, um, which are, are published on oldbobdylan.com um, for the February 13th show and then the two February 14th shows, uh, afternoon and evening. And they're, bas- they, you know, they're, they're basically all the same set list. Um, the, the songs are kind of sequenced or, or slightly sequenced out of order. Uh, some, some of these tracks got cut um, and, and weren't included on this um, the, the final recorded uh, product. Interestingly, he played It's All Over Now, uh, Baby Blue, um, which I would have loved to have heard this this band's version of that song. Oh, wow. Um, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Um, that's, uh, that's an unfortunate oversight on the record. Um, but yeah, like, like I said, it's a professional operation. Like he's, they're going out on stage. They know what they're playing. They're going down the list one, two, three. Then the band's going to come out, or you know, the band has been out, but Bob's probably going off stage, and the band's taken over for a couple songs. Bob comes back with the acoustic guitar, then they all kind of come back together and uh, and rock out towards the end. It, um, yeah, it's, it's lacking that that sense of like of of um, mystery or that sense of um, uh, tension or energy or whatever that existed in, on those earlier records. Uh, and that, to be honest, for me, like I don't know that I've ever felt that at a live show. Maybe one or two, um, but um, but certainly in this kind of professionalized, corporatized music festival world um, kind of thing, you know, most most sets that um, that I've seen throughout my life, as good as they can be, definitely feel like they're on rails. Like there's no possibility of them, yeah, changing or going wrong or something interesting or exciting or never before having happened happening. On rails is is a good image uh, for for what you're talking about. Um, that's a big danger to, uh, I think, uh, bands um, and, right. and musicians everywhere um, that you want to try to avoid at all costs is sounding, sounding like you're not actively inspired. Even if you are, you want to try to communicate that um, somehow. Um if you're not, you want to try to fake it somehow. You want to you want to make it feel interesting, um, feel vital. And this record, the performances certainly sound vital, but they do also sound a little bit. Maybe a, they lack a little bit of air, slightly. Um, I think for the most part it succeeds, and it sounds like Bob is lucid which is something really crucial to his most successful performances and, and uh, recordings is, is 
that he sounds connected to what he's saying in some way. There's a high, high bar for that for him, obviously. But uh, I think he mostly clears it here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I you know, as, as far as these like on rails kind of um, professionalized arena shows go, like this is this uh, it sounds like as good as you're going to get. Um, especially, um, you know, considering the the quality of the material that that uh, is being played, um, and yeah, I mean this this uh, this uh, these first couple songs of the second side or second record, necessary uh, rather, um, is uh, is a is a nice uh, it's a nice kind of reprieve, I would say, from the very heavy, um, indulgent kind of sound that they have they've adopted up until now. Now we're we're flashing back to original. Uh, Baby Bob, um, when it was just him and a harmonica and a uh, and a guitar, um, and I think that suits you know the song. It's only a couple songs. I think it's really only three songs that he does this for, um, but it suits these three songs. These three songs in particular, you know, make sense for this kind of approach. Starting with "Don't Think Twice," it's all right. Yeah. Um, again, and as we've spoken of before, "Don't Think Twice," it's all right is a a song about. Um, telling a, a girl or a young uh, telling a young woman that she's stupid but that it's okay <laughs> um, because for all she knows he's also kind of stupid uh, this is the the balance the delicate balance of love in the Bob Dylan song universe is um, you don't even know me you you have no idea what it's like to be me um, how cool I am how um, how uh, yeah, I guess he's not calling himself stupid. He's just saying she's dumb. Yeah, basically. Uh, but it's all right. Don't think twice. Right. He has, has the gentlemanly, um, the, the politeness to to tell her, but worry not, my dear. I will not be troubling you anymore. I'm off to seek um, other better women. <laughs> You just kind of wasted my precious time. Yeah, you just kind of wasted my precious time. Absolute bad boy songwriting at its uh, finest. He's uh, he's 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 negging here, right? Right, um, being negative in a way that uh, is meant to inspire uh, further adoration, possibly. Yeah, he's uh, he's doing gaslighting. He's being a, a toxic farm boy or whatever <laughs> <laughs> um and speaking of uh toxicity uh our next song just like a woman i think uh probably would would not be looked upon too 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 fondly were it written today i guess but i don't know i think this song i i think this song is actually a, a bit more uh respectful than than say the last one uh if we're going to talk about it in the, in these terms, um, <laughs> uh, just like a woman, I think is a song that is, um, a bit of, a, I think it, it's a dignifying approach in, in some way to the subject, um, where he's, he's talking about this woman as a very three dimensional human being with, um, a lot of different qualities, um, that she that she aches that she has longings and and dreams and that she also has weaknesses um so i feel like 
you could look at this song as and get very upset if you wanted to um but okay it's just a really good song uh i don't think that um i'm not in the mood to get yeah. really mad at it or whatever that that's fair yeah i mean uh i i this is uh i think one of one of the great i don't know that i would call this a love song necessarily but one of the great romance songs you know one of the songs having to do with love one of uh, the great songs about uh how women women be sometimes <laughs> <laughs> women be emotional can't live with them can't live without them yeah <laughs> amen brother yeah um, um it's not really that type of song um no, yeah it's a very yeah. nuanced and beautiful song about uh the dynamics of, uh, of love and how you can, um, and he, he puts himself on the line in this song too. Um, he says, please don't let on that. You knew me when I was hungry and it was your world. He's, he's humbling himself in a way saying, don't, don't tell other people about how desperate I was and how, how low that I was when I, when I first met you. Um, there's an, there's a, a nuanced approach to um, vulnerability. Who's got the power in a relationship? Right. Yeah. I mean, he he seems to feel he seems to feel that he's he's he was once uh, below uh, her, but now is above her. Um, uh, you know, similar kind of vibe to what you get on uh, Rolling Stone, for instance. Um, so I guess and and uh, positively Fourth Street for that matter. Like if you, in the same way that like Woody Allen in his films doesn't um, always give whoa, his own. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> in the same way that Woody Allen, for example, doesn't give his own characters like universally lovable character. He makes it he, he makes it clear that the when he plays a character like that, that that person is not necessarily to be looked up to that they have their own flaws and issues. Um, I feel like. In those songs, Dylan also kind of, uh, just like Woody Allen, puts it. He 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 puts in enough um, enough balance there with with the implication of who's at fault that that things uh, feel three dimensional. They feel layered and not so black and white. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, like. Uh, I don't think it makes any sense and I'm not really interested in like evaluating how woke or unwoke any of these songs no, are no, in the first no. place. But just thematically, um, um, if we were want to talk about it that way. Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I would say that some of, some of them are a little uh, kinder uh, than others. I don't, I don't think Fourth Street is necessarily the most um, uh, uh, understanding or generous um, Absolutely take not. On, uh, on a former partner. Um but um, yeah, I mean, I like just like a woman, I, you know, just uh, on its own as a song is uh, is one of the greats, and um, this is uh, you know, it's 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 an okay it, it okay rendition of it. It definitely, I I would not have liked to have heard it with the fucking you know synthesizer and shit behind it. Um, I definitely definitely am partial to the uh, to the record cut with that that uh, gentle and kind of warm electric guitar sound that he's got going there. Yeah, um, I mean the record but, cut is perfect it's, it's one of the greats uh real real uh real three star song three out of three um no question um but yeah uh so the only other one um the only other one in this kind of acoustic um interlude i guess we could call it um is uh it's all right ma 
which um, is one of the more exciting, I think, kind of uh, um, acoustic songs that he could have played. Um, I've always been a big fan of that. I've always been a big fan of uh, Bring It All Back Home in general. That's probably my second uh, second or third favorite uh, record of his. Um, Same. Just ever, basically. Um, so this, uh, this is up there for me. Um, and I really, I really love how, like, just kind of like nimble and fast and quick he is with this, with this version. I think, I think this one clocks in at less than six minutes. Um, yeah, like probably one of end. the shorter, uh, versions of the song. Yeah. And the, the record cut, I think is like seven and a half minutes or something like that. So he's, he's shaved off, you know, uh, a, a, a large amount of time just by like, you know, spitting through the lyrics. Right. Yeah, he cut out all the parts where he talks about how women are stupid. Um, <laughs> this is an interesting one because it, though it's an acoustic song, it never feels like an acoustic song to me because it's so right, electrifying. Right. The lyrics and the energy is so like uh, driven and menacing in a way, and uh, full of full of revelatory spite uh, that it the audience is maybe more energized for this one than any of the other ones, even it, which maybe says something about, um, how sometimes less is more, uh, when, when you're Bob Dylan, <laughs> that, um, this is, and it's something that comes up all throughout his career. I think there are times when Bob, uh, overestimates how much he needs to adorn his voice you're Bob Dylan. <laughs> Maybe you don't need the backup vocals and the and the flange guitar or whatever, but I digress. Um, right, yeah, we'll, we'll get into that conversation when we do the uh, the Budokan live album. Yeah. Um, although, look, something there's a plus and minus. There's pros and cons to everything. Sure. No, I, I'm glad. I'm glad we have the full the full spectrum of Bob live approaches uh, coming, coming up in. soon. Um, but this this. Uh, recording has a great moment where when Bob talks about um, even the president of the United States must have to sometimes sometimes must have to stand naked and the crowd just erupts into a furious uh, applause and screaming because they're imagining in their heads um, Richard Nixon yeah, who was the original um, sort of evil Cheeto president Right. Yes. Uh, sort of. Um, what's a what's an easy way to insult him? Like his nose was like a penis or something, right? Um, yeah, tricky dicky, tricky dick. They called him right. that. Um, uh, all those Philip Guston paintings or and drawings where it's like he looks like he has a big penis nose. You're right. It does look like his nose is a penis. Kind of uh, an anti-Semitic trope, if you ask me. It's not a Jewish big nose. <laughs> it's a very different kind of big nose that that Richard Nixon had. He had the nose yeah, sort of, of like, elongated at the tip instead like a, of on the an aardvark. He has sort of an anteater type nose. Um, right. He looks like uh, a, 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 an a, some kind of probo- He had a proboscis. Um, anyway. Uh, audience eats that up and um they love it we were talking earlier about how uh bob has not performed this song since 2013 and i feel a great uh relief knowing that because even bob indirectly um 
doing anything, uh, saying anything about Donald Trump just makes me feel like uh, that sucks. Sick to your stomach. Yeah, I I just don't want to hear that. Yeah, we we had talked about this at one point in one of the previous episodes, but like the 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 contrast between late period Bob versus late period like Neil Young or something, uh, and who is releasing records called like the Monsanto Years. Well, hey, um, that's I can respect the Neil Young approach, which is anti corporate, which yeah. is different than being a uh, anti, which it's not being like resistance liberal type. Unless I don't know about a Neil Young record where he he says there like there's a Cheeto in chief. I guarantee you. Can you do like a a, a Neil Young voice saying something like that? Hmm. I can try, but it's probably not going to be very good. Uh, I'm not. I'm not so good with the falsetto. There's a Cheeto rising, and he's up in the White House. Yeah. There you go. You're 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 the you're the impressionist of the two of us. Because I'll oh. still never vote for you. <laughs> Fuck. I'm sorry. I I guarantee I you see there's Obama again. <laughs> I I don't know why I'm I, doing Harvest Moon. <laughs> I go to. I guarantee you, there's there's a draft of a song on the cutting room floor somewhere that has lyrics along those lines. Whether or not he's ever going to put it out. Um. Did you know that he goes to, like, uh, the Wizen Center, by the way? Whoa. In Agora Hills, California? In Agora Hills, yeah. He and, uh, I remember there's a picture of him and his girlfriend, Daryl Hannah. Wow. Uh, yeah. Emerging from the Antique Marts at uh, the Wizen cool. Center. Actually, I think my, my dad saw him at, at on Thousand Oaks Boulevard once. Thousand yeah. Oaks, California. Um, that makes sense. He's a local boy when it comes to this, this neck of the woods. Um these days but uh where were we i don't know uh the next yeah, this was it's all right ma. it's all right ma. you know yeah. it's it's all right ma it's all right it Ian. All right. it's good song i am interested just before we jump on to the this second band section uh to i feel like i'm gonna have to look up a, a youtube video or something of one of these recent performances like you said uh i mentioned that it was last performed in 2013 like what I can't imagine what a 2013 Bob performance of It's All Right Ma looks like and sounds like. I think I know what it sounds like. It, it, it would have to take 15 minutes. It sounds like uh, advertising signs they can't. You and the thing you're the one. You can do this if you want. That's pretty good. He can't be playing the guitar himself, though, right? He, no, he, not he, these he can't move. He can't move his fingers up and down the fretboard that fast. I don't think so. Because there's no answer fit. Do you see? And have to quit. Yeah, I, I think he's performed it. We'll have to watch and listen. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, now we uh, we get into the back half of the band. Uh, it's another. Oh, it's another three songs. Yeah, the shape I'm in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When these you... these two, the shape I'm in, and when you awake, that's fine. They're they sound good. But then the weight comes, and that's like a all time. Ripper. It's a great song that everybody we all love it. Everyone loves. I think it's probably the song that if you even if you don't know the band, you know that song. Yes. Uh yeah. This is uh this is this is classic uh classic classic rock. And he says take a load off Fanny, 
not Annie, which, yeah, as we've discussed it before, is really a disappointment to anybody named Annie um, out there who, who who maybe had some special connection to this tune. <laughs> um, sorry. But it's, yeah, what, what, what more is there to say about that? That's great. And then what you've got after that is a song called... Um, uh, actually a Jimi Hendrix cover called uh, All Along right. the Watchtower. Um <laughs> uh, and this is like the first time that we've seen uh Dylan as far as I know, maybe he, did he play at the Isle of Wight? Well I, it's not on maybe he played at Isle of Wight Festival. Um but I don't know if there's a recording of it. First played January third, nineteen seventy four, which was okay. the first show so, yeah. of this tour. So yeah, this is like the first time Dylan has played this live, and it's post uh, it being very famous because of a young man by the name of James Hendri- <laughs> Jimi Hendrix, and um, <laughs> who covered it. And uh, what do you think? Do you, th- do you think this version? Uh, holds a candle to the, the famous psychedelic 60s rock and roll of of Jimmy's version? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that this one, I mean, you know, Jimmy is uh, Jimmy. Is Jimmy. I, I've never really vibed with the whole kind of guitar hero kind of thing as much as, um, as much as even, you know, the John Wesley Harding version, certainly. Um, but, uh, yeah, this, this is a more kind of appropriate way to present that song. I think, um, uh, it definitely has a, has a weight and a, and a, uh, um, an energy that is lacking a little bit on the, uh, on the John Wesley Harding record. Um, that is, is a great, a great cut initially, obviously, uh, we love it. Um, but, um, but it is, it is cool to hear Bob kind of reclaim it and, uh, for, for himself and, 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 you know, just, uh, rip it, you know, the way that, uh, the way that more people are probably familiar with it from the Jimmy version. Right. I mean, as we spoke on the last episode, uh, if this record could be understood as an attempt on Dylan's part to, to approach once more some of his older material, um, through the eyes of a grown ass man, with uh, children and uh, and a stronger, steadier hold on his own self and who he is in the world, his place in the world. Uh, what better song to to recontextualize uh, than this this gem from uh, from John Wesley Harding, which has so much to offer for that type of treatment. Um, it's very dark and mysterious lyrically and it has uh, sort of an apocalyptic air to it that uh, as as we know from the last song uh, people are loving the political angle uh, with the uh, president of the United States mentioning that character Um, so this song with its talk of the businessmen drinking your wine and the plowmen and the earth and the whatnot it's it's probably like uh it's like candy to a baby uh or it's it's like it's like stealing candy from a it's it's great for the audience they love that they 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 sure do uh interestingly this uh this this appears to have taken the cake for most frequently performed track 
as far as I can tell, according to oldbobdylan.com, 2,268 instances um, between January 3rd, 1974 and November 29th. Uh, 2018. I think I was at one at that show, or at one of the one of the ones right around then, um, at uh, the Beacon Theater in New York City. You saw him play uh, this song live. I might have. Yeah, I I can't remember exactly what. Um, yeah, Beacon Theater, New York City. Yeah, this uh, this would have been it. Wow, I can't uh, I can't say that I <laughs> I can't say that I remember at this point, unfortunately. But it might have um, sounded slightly different. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's kind of the thing. This is looking at this now. This is an interesting set list. Um, what do we got, Chief? Uh, some of the classics, you know, "It Ain't Me, Babe," uh, "Highway 61," "Simple Twist." Of, I remember "Simple Twist of Fate." That was one that really got uh, really got the audience going. I would say. Yeah, that's a real um, heater. Uh, everybody gets so pumped for that one. Yeah, uh, but then there's some other uh, some some other cuts that some people are a little uh, less familiar with. Trying to get to heaven uh, is on here, and lovesick. So a couple uh, time out of mind classics. Right, Tr- trying to get to heaven is an interesting song because it features the lyrics. Uh, well, he says, "Trying to get to heaven before they close the door." Return mm-hmm. of the char- the famous character Heaven's Door <laughs> from Knocking on Heaven's Door. That's a good, that's a good point. Yeah, uh, he, he, he brings really it back. This is a that's an interesting that's an interesting connection. I, I I never thought of it that way. Trying to get to heaven before they close Heaven's, heaven's door. door, which presumably you might also knock on. Right, yeah, well, you, you would think that if, if he gets to heaven after they've closed the door, you can simply knock on it, right? And, and knocking on heaven's door sounds like that's maybe a bad thing to be doing, that you don't, that maybe you're weary and you're ready to die. But trying to get there, it's like, I'm busting my ass to get to, to die. Um, <laughs> these, are, these are the insights you can only get from the Jokerman podcast. Um, well, maybe we should uh, we should wrap this show up, and and we're getting to the very end here with uh, Highway sixty one. Um, gotta say, I miss I miss the slide whistle or whatever yeah. that is. Um, me too. I love that sound. Um, that's one of the sort of classic instruments that Bob Dylan was very fond of using on on all of his songs from that period. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, no, we, we, we don't have that slide whistle or whatever it's called and um, that cartoon sound effect. But what we do have is a pretty raucous and rolling version of uh, Highway 61 um, where Bob keeps doing that sort of full-throated, shouty, um, alpha singing style on a beloved classic. Yeah, very uh, very Chad kind of approach. Um the uh, you know the the recorded version of the song has always kind of struck me as like like a little sillier than it should be or needs to be. Uh, I I I do actually like the slide whistle, uh, but I I, I uh, was uh, always kind of curious about like what just kind of a straight faced approach to this song would would look like and sound like, uh, and and that's what we get here. Uh, I think it uh, it's it's nice to have a um, a just kind of rock and roll version of uh of one of rock and roll's great tracks yeah another another signature three-star tune 
three out of three. And I, I think that all throughout this live performance, I actually do feel Bob's able to maintain some of the sense of humor uh, and playfulness of these classic mid-60s numbers, albeit in a in a bit more of a heavy slap in your back, uh, slap in your knee, har, har, har type of way, where it's, it's a little bit like, uh, this is the Sam Kinison hum- version of like the humor, where, as opposed to the humor of the early years of, the, of those performances, it was a little bit more like the, um, the Mitch Hedberg approach, <laughs> if we're going to use a, a stand-up comedian analog. And then the next song is um, that that song called "Like a Rolling Stone," right? Which he wrote after uh, after he heard a couple of those early Rolling Stone albums and uh, said, uh, "Yeah, I, I would like to be a Rolling Stone." Yeah, um, he says in this song, "There's a lyric about um, Mick Jagger. Uh, he's one of the best." He's not like the others. He's ahead of the rest. And he talks about uh, how cool it would be to be like uh, Mick Jagger's friend. Yes, uh, it's it's and it's a it's a topic uh, or theme that he kind of returns to or has returned to uh, recently in right. uh, in uh, I Contain Multitudes. Rough and rowdy right? ways um, that one of those British bad boys, the Rolling Stones. Exactly. Sort of he's, referencing <laughs> that famous song that he wrote about that band. He's he's uh, he's been a fan of the Rolling Stones from the very beginning and he still is today. And um, really one of the biggest supporters of that group. And that's why they're still going, because, you know, if you have somebody like Bob Dylan in your in in the crowd and from what I understand, Bob goes to every every single Rolling Stones show (laughs) and he has this sign that says, you know, like still with you. Um, I wish I were one of you. Yeah. I wish I were like a Rolling Stone. Yeah. And then, you know, Mick sees him uh, in the crowd. They catch eyes and and Bob winks and and they they play on. It, this is a pretty good version of like Rolling Stone. Yeah, it's uh, it, I, w- I would definitely say it's a better version than the self-portrait version. Yeah, yes. Um, you know, I had an interesting thought about like a Rolling Stone. Um, all jokes aside, um, th- let me just put on my tinfoil hat. Um, this, what if this song? When he says uh, the the when he talks about the character of the. Um, the, the, when he talks about the diplomat and the chrome horse and the Siamese cat, and mm-hmm. then when he talks about the the other character, the um, Napoleon in rags in the language mm-hmm. that he used, and he says, "Go to him now." He calls you. You can't refuse. Do you think he's talking about himself in any of those characters? Do you think he is the Napoleon in rags? Um. I don't think so, right? Cause like I'm, it, I'm looking at I'm looking at the lyrics right now just so I can refresh myself. Because some uh, people think that this song is about him talking to, about um, Edie Sedgwick and and the, and and Andy Warhol. That's something that some people think, right? In and which case, this, he would be the Napoleon in rags, and it's like it it goes going back to this theme that we've discussed of. I mean, if that were the case, 
Um, I think that it's an interesting way to think about the song because it goes back to this thing of uh, him calling this this young woman out. He's calling her kind of stupid and sort of taunting her. But at the same time, he's saying, like, you're no better than I am now. Now you're at the bottom like me or something like that. Right. Yeah, I guess maybe it could be him, right? You used to be so amused at Napoleon and Rags and the language that he used. You thought I was cute. You thought I was... He's saying, like, you thought that I was just something to be a passing fancy. Like, I was just, like, this curious young drifter. And now... And then you abandoned me and went to the highfalutin uh, art crowd people, the fancy people. And now you're fucked and you have you have no one to turn to but me again. And I'm you're no better than I am. Right. I've yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that you know, that could be And that uh, to me that like I was thinking about that if that were to be the case of how to think about the song, it does seem to gel with the anger uh that he has. Why is he so mad at this character? And I get to me, it seemed like a possible motivator was this feeling of like vindica- being vindicated that like you thought you were better than me. You're not. Right. Yeah. I mean, there there is always the danger, I think, of trying to read too much into the biographical details of any Bob song. Although, you know, as he gets a little older, I think that starts to make a little more sense uh, in our next episode. Perhaps I think we will have uh, some insights about um about some of the personal inspiration behind some of the characters on on old uh, Blood on the Tracks. Um, but these earlier songs, I think, are, are a little more deliberately mercurial, and um, it's harder, um, it seems harder to me at least, to kind of draw straight, straight lines between characters in the songs and, you know, people and events and stuff from Bob's particular life. Yeah, we should never do that. Except for, I mean, this this song, which is so obviously about um, uh, Mick Jagger, Charlie Watts, and um, Keith Richards, and um, Brian Jones, and and all the members of the Rolling Stones, actually. Yes. Um, yeah, good version. Um, which brings us to the, uh, the final the final song, "Blown in the Wind." Uh, very simply, uh, bad version for me. <laughs> Well, it's, a, it's an encore. Um, you can hear that they, they leave the stage after uh, Like Rolling Stone, and uh, the, then you can hear the, the audience clap and chant for them to come back, um, if I'm not mistaken, and they return. This does appear to, yes, on the 13th and both of the 14th shows, according to the set list, this was the, this was the very last, uh, the last track to be performed. And it, and they come back with, with this tune and yeah, maybe they shouldn't have done an encore. <laughs> I, I I mean, I just uh, blown in the wind, I, you know, play it. It just give me Bob and a guitar and a harmonica and that's it. I yeah. don't, I, I don't need the fucking, you know, gussied up, uh, uh, synthesizer, you know, Robbie Robertson noodling on a guitar version. Right. I think that this would have been a sweet way to, it would have been a sweet way to end this show and this record if he did come back out and just did a stripped down uh, version of that classic song um, in in a giving new life to it as as he did with 
those with those other that little stretch of acoustic well not of of just guitar earlier yeah 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 acoustic uh variants um, um but uh, yeah as we as we have it it's just kind of a it sounds a little bit over overplayed perhaps yeah i mean some some songs deserve the rock and rolling and the uh and the production and the synthesizer and the uh energy and stuff and some some can speak for themselves and this is i think this falls in the latter category for me at least if you're uh, if if you want to end if you want to end the show on a on a high note real high high t note uh uh to use our terminology like rolling stone is it that's that's the song this one is uh i you know i i understand why they're doing it for sentimental reasons for all the uh 30 somethings that uh you know probably paid a bunch of money to go see him at the the forum this night uh, on a night off from uh their professional jobs or whatever um but um and it just yeah. it uh, it's a square peg in a round hole for me yeah everyone's profession everyone was got the night off from their job like working at a gas station where you made like sixty thousand dollars a year <laughs> right in 1974 um yeah uh overall though this is uh i can't imagine like going to this and having a bad time it seems awesome oh yeah no i mean if, if uh, you were if there i had if i had been there i wouldn't uh I'm, I'm sure i would i would look fondly back upon this show as one of the greatest that i've ever been to and uh the cover we didn't even discuss um is very hell-bent on it's very bent on showing how uh, much of a great time it was because it's a really cool cover where there's like just a sea of lighters up in the air. Um, I wonder when that was. You can't tell based on listening to it when everyone's got their lighter in the air. But uh, apparently that happened at these shows. Yeah, it's very it's very dramatic image. Um, it's a good cover. Yeah, it's it's good and there's. There's a lot of cool um, pictures uh, from this era. Uh, I feel like this era is just of a. It is very connected, obviously, to the Planet Waves era, um, which stylistically, like the way Bob was dressing and stuff, I, I just think is kind of cool. He just looks very low key, and it, it, it minus like he's he has like a big scarf at times, but uh, he's like wearing a hoodie, has just kind of like medium length not not long hair uh like a little bit of a stubble he just looks like a dude yeah this is before this is immediately before he he stumbled upon his rolling thunder persona uh of you know white-faced uh uh native american uh scarf flat brim hat guy um it's uh <laughs> it's a transitional period in terms of uh in terms of his his imagery yeah with Rolling Thunder in that era, he would answer the question, how theatrical can I look just short of wearing a costume? How how dramatic can I make wearing jeans look? <laughs> and it's very exciting um, to, to look forward to the next chapter, uh, which is going to be a little album called Blood on the Tracks. Yeah, yeah, we're uh, we're about to really get into kind of the the second golden period of Bob. I think the next three records that we get to talk about between that and Basement Tapes and Desire are all, uh, you know, that's that's probably the uh, 
at least from a critical consensus perspective, probably the strongest uh, three record run that he's had since um, since bringing it all back home, Highway 61 and Blonde on Blonde. Then Street Legal is. I mean, we're about to hit up on some real fire stuff with Street Legal, and then I won't even want to talk about what's next. It's too exciting. What happens after that? Yes. I mean, I I almost feel like we should. I I contemplated not having us not talk about Blood on the Tracks (laughs) because it's too well known. But uh, we've got to stick to our guns and be completionists about this. That's true. And I I think that we can maybe, uh, uh, I at least want to talk more about the New York sessions from Blood on the Tracks versus the Minneapolis sessions. Cool. Uh, The the quieter uh, acoustic takes of all the songs, the original cuts that he discarded most of. Right. uh, Before he moved on to the, uh, you know, the full band sound for uh, Tinkled Up in Blue and Idiot Wind and stuff. For sure. So look forward to next, uh, to look forward to when we get to talk about blood on the tracks because it won't be like normal people you've heard talking about blood on the tracks it's going to be much more nuanced and uh, cool exactly uh well thank you for joining us um through this interesting li- live dylan alive period of, of 1974 and this has been jokerman Bye.